Hi, welcome to Supex Radio. I'm your host, Bob Fitz. Supex is a weekly talk show devoted to startup and early stage entrepreneurship, venture investing, and small businesses in general. And I'm happy to say that you can now find us in the iTunes store and on SoundCloud, SoundCloud just by searching uh, for Supex Radio. And that's S-U-P-X Radio. And also to remember to follow us on Twitter at the Supex, and that's at T-H-E-S-U-P-X. Our guest today is my friend and, and serial entrepreneur Albert Santalo. He's the founder of CareCloud and founder of a company he's going to tell us about today, which I'm excited to learn more about. Albert, I really appreciate you taking the time for being with us today. Thanks, Bob. My pleasure. So, look, for the, those of us that are in the South Florida startup ecosystem, the CareCloud story is pretty well known. It was uh, it's hugely successful you know, I, I would uh, not make you have to tell that story yet again. I've seen you speak. You're a fantastic speaker. I'm really more interested, Albert, in lessons that come out of that. And uh, real quickly, though, to frame it, just if you could just explain what what CareCloud is, the, the type of company it is, and uh, and then we'll get going. Sure, Bob. Thanks. So, so CareCloud is a healthcare technology company founded in January of 2009 and if you if you think about 2009 and what that kind of economy was like you know we're just coming out of the the downturn turn in 2008 and uh, you know there were a lot of worried people uh, in terms of you know the investment financial community etc for me it was actually interesting because it was the second time that I had founded a, a company in an economic downturn my first time was in 2001, a month after 9/11, so I, I sort of knew that dynamic a little bit. And if you if you know what you're doing, you can take advantage of those downturns in a big way. Because if nothing else, everything's cheaper. Mm-hmm. So with CareCloud, you know the the vision that we had, and this this is shortly after the the iPhone and the App Store had just come out in 2008, was that you know healthcare needed a modern cloud-based underpinning. You know, every efforts in healthcare are really hard and the systems that power the industry tend to be really old and systems that that evolved over decades. Right. And, you know, there's a reason for that. And so our, our belief was that if you built a modern cloud based underpinning for the industry, then it would facilitate the development of the applications on top of it. And if you built it to be social then you could connect industry stakeholders in, in a kind of a sort of social network type type configuration as opposed to, you know, these cryptic EDI connections that had existed from years past and, and did a poor job of connecting healthcare stakeholders. And so that was the genesis of the company. And so, you know, kind of put together the business plan and, uh, and the investment uh, kind of structure and so forth. Uh, by January of 2009, incorporated the company, and then uh, ended up raising $2.8 million of angel investment in that year for the company. And during that time, you know, we we put together a team and developed, you know, the financial and administrative side of our software. So our, our customers were medical practices or are medical practices of all shapes and sizes. Uh, in about 50 different med- medical specialties, small, medium, and large across the U.S. And, you know, we, over time, built out the clinical solution as well. So they would use our software to pretty much power the entirety of their practice. So everything from the front desk appointment scheduling and the whole kind of cashier process to the registration of the patient, the clinical visit that's done by the doctor, the ordering of labs, and um, prescriptions and things like that, the medical documentation, and then ultimately the billing and accounts receivable management to the to the insurance companies, to the patient. And aside from a software as a service offering, you know, all truly cloud-based, we also provided a back office service to help them with, you know, what's called revenue cycle management to help them collect from the insurance company. So, you know, we, we, we got all that done, you know, with the first 2.8 million um, that was all done through private investors. In 2010, we um, raised another $5 million from pi- private investors. And, uh, you know, if you look back on that time, that's that's a lot of money from, from kind of angels. Mm-hmm. 
Um, shortly thereafter, we were invited by IBM to compete in their smart cam competition in Silicon Valley. And um, it was interesting because we were shortlisted from 100 companies down to five. And we went out to the valley and competed right there in the Quadris and Sand Hill Road. And we ended up um, jointly winning with another company out there that was based in the valley. And so uh, we were invited from there to the global competition. But at the time, uh, the VCs really got to take a look at us. They liked what we were doing. And, uh, but we had just finished off a round of $5 million of investment. So we really didn't need the VC money at the time. And um, I kept those relationships warm so that by the time we went back, in 2011 for our next round, you know, we, we almost exclusively went to Silicon Valley to try to get venture investment there. So is there anything unique? You've got a, a, a vast skill set, Albert. What are, what's unique to the EMR, EHR space of being a startup in that space versus other spaces? Like well, is, it, it, is it tap? Is it the fact that you've won? You, 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 you uh, obviously there's the medical piece and tapping into large institutions, and it's heavily regulated. And then you're dealing with legacy systems. Or what are some other things that aren't so obvious? Well, I think if you so so you know just on my background, right? I'm yep. a, I'm a software engineer. You are the least the- nerdiest sounding software engineer I've ever met, Albert. Just so you know, like. Well, there's a very nerdy side to me, yeah. and uh, and I actually I really really enjoyed being an engineer. Uh, I haven't coded in a long time, right? But I I've sort of morphed into the product person, right? Over time, which is a great skill set to have as an entrepreneur. And you know, I, I started out in financial technology, and then later on um, saw healthcare for the first time. Built a system in, in healthcare IT in the early '90s. And then got another view because I became a, a management consultant for a few years and, um, you know, in multiple industries. So, so by the time I founded my first company and my second, you know, always wanted to be an entrepreneur. And, and I just felt healthcare was this huge problem, right? And I understood it well because of my first experience. And, you know, having worked in other industries and seeing how they technology enable, healthcare was just decades behind the times. I mean, it was just, it was just crazy. And here we had the largest industry in the economy, you know, huge social problems and ramifications to all this. But yet you had healthcare practitioners using these terrible, expensive technologies. And so it always occurred to me, and it, you got to break down healthcare a little bit and say, look, let's put hospitals in one side and pro- providers, you know, namely doctors kind of in another in another side. Doctors tended to be this very fragmented industry. But when you think about it from a patient perspective, the patient's being bounced around from doctor to doctor. And so what better channel than the internet exists to, to share information across? You know, if you can deal with the privacy aspects of it, then the internet becomes a natural channel into every medical practice where you can share information. But yet most of the systems that existed were not cloud-based systems. And, you know, so, so we felt like a true multi-tenant architecture using cloud technologies from the ground up was the way to address this problem, right? And then, you know, from a, from a delivery perspective, that's sort of what we did. Now, a, a really important element of all this is that, you know, medical practices don't want to spend a lot of money. They don't have a lot of time for training. Uh, supporting them can be very expensive. So we took advantage of another trend that's called the consumerization of enterprise software, to basically say, look, we need to, we need to create our software to be beautiful and usable as if Apple had built it. And remember, this is at a time where the iPhone and the apps on the App Store, et cetera, were sort of changing the game in consumers' minds in terms of what software should look and feel like, right? And so we said these same type of principles can be applied to business. And why don't other enterprise software developers do the same? Well, there's a whole host of reasons why not, but it's mostly due to the fact that just working on old software stacks. So if there was one distinguishing characteristic of CareCloud, it would be that people think of it as the most beautiful user interface in all of healthcare IT. And that really helped us, you know, to light sales on fire. It helped us to stand out in the crowd 
and and, and uh, you know honestly elevate the profile of the company pretty quickly to the national stage. When when you I don't know if it's unique to that company, but I would imagine that the process process mapping uh, was complex given that the number of people that plug in from the the payer side, et cetera. How long did you spend, you know, in development before you truly started the sales process? So we we sort of spent the better part of the first year developing the software, and then and then started with uh, three practices in three different medical specialties, uh, just kind of perfecting the product, and and we brought sales and marketing on board pretty early, right? So our goal here, you know, if you think about medical practices. The average size, and we, we had very, we built a very, very healthy sales and marketing model, but the average practice size uh, for our software as a service product was somewhere around $30,000 or so a year in recurring revenue. And then on the revenue cycle side, it was about $80,000 a year in recurring revenue. And so, you know, we really wanted to have marketing to a large extent, you know, kind of ignite our pipeline. Mm-hmm. And, and then bring in salespeople to close the deal, but not have kind of a pure outside sales model where people are knocking on doors. And so, you know, I'm proud to say that during those days, the number one lead source for CareCloud was you know, about 90% of our leads came through carecloud.com, which, you know, any, any savvy marketer knows is the cheapest uh, source you could possibly have. And we did that through a you know combination of efforts in other disciplines of marketing, including PR. But you know we had sort of more leads than we could handle, uh, and then we had automation that would help drive those leads into the right hands to be able to close the business. And you know at our peak, you know we were selling close to seventy deals a month of all shapes and sizes uh, by virtue of that machine. And then then the issue became implementing them, right? Right. Because the implementation wasn't wasn't trivial, and we were driving in excess of 100% growth. So you know, operational issues come out of that. But uh, but you know, we we got a lot of traction really quickly. So your initial target set was guys were doctors with thirty thousand a month in recurring revenue. That's a doctor with probably how many patients total? So, so the typical the way I'll break it down is a, a typical medical practice. Mm-hmm. Well. A, a typical doctor collected about three hundred to three hundred fifty dollars a year, and uh, based on our economics, that translated to about thirty thousand. Well, a typical there were there were close to three doctors in an average practice, mm-hmm. and so think of it as a million dollars a year in revenue at the practice, and that that came out to the numbers I mentioned earlier. When will healthcare as a consumer? such as myself, be truly digital. I mean, I, I like my doctor a lot. <laughs> I like my doctor a lot, but he's probably 70. And, you know, I'm every time I go in, it's the exact same process. Clipboard, pen, three pieces of paper that have been probably photocopied four billion times or something. I mean, when and you, and you said it's a de- we were decades in the process. How, put it in innings. <laughs> Uh, if it were nine innings to digital, what, which inning are we in for from like for the average listener? Forget startup listener. I'm just talking about per, anybody that goes to a doctor. Well, I would say that predicting that is worse than predicting the weather. Uh oh. So, um, and that's from a guy who knows so something about it. Happen, yeah. So, so let me let me give you a couple couple nuggets to think about. Yep. So, you know, the the, the first one is that most of the systems that the doctors are using today. Mm-hmm. They're not happy with, right? It's slowing them down. It's causing them to work harder, longer hours. The dissatisfaction is growing tremendously. So I honestly think that the user interface is going to be relevant, especially for the clinical side of healthcare, mm-hmm. is yet to be released. And, and I think, you know, some of the things that, for instance, Amazon has done with Alexa and, you know, listening and natural language processing is probably the ultimate answer. But I don't think anybody's there yet in terms of that. And and so, you know, the other thing to know is that most of the, the EHR software that's out there is stuff that dates back in some cases to the 1960s and 70s. So there's, you know, there's a system out there that's pervasive called Epic, which, you know, hugely successful company. But, um, you know, and a lot of health systems have implemented Epic. But, um, 
you know, it's it's this is stuff that was first developed in 1978, built on obscure programming languages and so forth. So it's um, I don't know how much of a replatforming is going to have to happen over time for us to truly get to that digital vision that you're talking about. And and the last thing I would tell you is that where I really have very high hopes in terms of patient experience with digital mm-hmm. is I'm hoping that Apple can pull it off. And the reason I say that is because the Apple devices... It's you know, so ubiquitous. Yeah, they're ubiquitous, right? So we as consumers, if our health records are going to live anywhere, it's probably, you know, the Apple and health kit and so forth, that experience is where it should be. And... Um, you know, but 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 they haven't been all that great at executing in these enterprisey areas. Uh, but I'm hopeful that they can and they can open up the ecosystem to allow developers to really build, you know, great things on it. Sounds to me like we're not halfway through the game. Um, I would say we're in the third inning, honestly. Yeah. It, it, some people might think I'm crazy on that one because we, we just went, went through a cycle of the government spending, you know, 40, 50 billion dollars on healthcare IT deployment with government incentives. But it honestly, you know, incentivized people to implement old technology. Switching gears a little bit, talk a little bit, putting together an organization like that that grew very rapidly. I know you well enough to know that you're excellent with people. Would love to get a couple of insights into how you build a team properly from startup to early stage and manage that scaling. Uh, I do some consulting to the early stage sector myself. I think hiring people is the scariest thing that early stage companies do because the impact it could potentially have negatively on their, their enterprise. Can you talk about team building and scaling properly a little bit? Yeah. Yeah. You know, it's, it's a great question. And I, I tell you, it might be the most difficult part of all of all of this. It's particularly hard for engineering types in general because, you know, ultimately people are your biggest asset. Um, they can also be your biggest headache and they require they require a lot of care and feeding, right? So it's like you can't deal with them as a group. You have to deal with them as individuals and every, every single hire matters. So there's an old saying that says that, you know, A's attract A's and B's attract C's. Mm-hmm. And I've tried to... And I've screwed this up a million times, but I've tried to always hire A players and then have them, you know, attract other A players. Because I think one of the most important dynamics in one of these startups is, you know, people come to work and they're motivated and they stick around because of the other people they work with. And if you've got people who are just either have a bad attitude or are not, not, you know, getting it done, failing the team, et cetera, and you don't act on it, you know, they start looking at you and, and what's wrong with you and why do you tolerate this kind of stuff? How do you, how do you evaluate that talent? Cause let's face it, you know, a is a catch all because there's really several subgrades that lead into the overall a, you can be an a technically, and then a D in your ability to get along well with others. And, you know, you have to eject the assholes, pardon my French. I mean, you'll kill your, yeah. you'll kill a startup bringing yeah. it, bringing in the brilliant jerk. I totally agree. So I, I'll give you the classic answer and, and, and just take that to be the classic answer in my book. Anyway, mm-hmm. take that, you know, understand that I, again, I've screwed this up a million times. So, <laughs> Um, You know, I I sort of try to put people on a matrix, two-dimensional matrix. Mm -hmm. On one dimension is, you know, their their kind of execution or ability to execute. And on the other dimension is their ability to fit within the culture and so forth. And, you know, depending upon where you fall in that matrix is what drives what we do with you, right? So if you have upper right-hand corner, you know, upper right-hand quadrant, you have, you know, the guy or gal who's executing and fits really well. Well, your, your challenge with those people is how do you keep them? If you have in the lower right-hand, lower left-hand quadrant, you have the people that don't fit, don't execute. Well, you really got to build an HR structure that filters those people out before you hire them uh, because that's a nightmare, right? And so, then you've got the other two quadrants, right? So you've got the high fit, low execution. Well, what you try to do with those people is you try to train them, coach them, give them, give them a chance here or there, 
to get into the upper right-hand quadrant. And if they can't get there, you exit them. Mm -hmm. And then what's left is high execution, low fit, right? And to me, the difference between good companies and great companies is how they deal with that quadrant. And the right answer is what you said earlier, which is that you need to exit those people, you know, because regardless of their execution, their execution may be coming on the off the backs of other great people who are demotivated and performing, you know, at less than the level they could because of that phenomenon. Any tricks you've learned along the way that have helped you better evaluate the fit. I would imagine the evaluating the execution and the talent piece is easier because you can you can see work product, you can get them to do you know sample codes if they're on the technical side. You can check references, you can find out in a network about them. How yeah. do you how do you what are some things that you've done to evaluate fit before they're in and you know thirty days into it you realize oh my gosh yeah. we got that wrong. Well, the, the answer varies depending upon the function. Mm-hmm. Um, so like, for instance, if you're hiring engineers, then, then you want to go deep on the, the engineering capability. That's one dimension. But, but I guess the, the universal answer is, and as obvious as this sounds, it, most people don't do it, which is you got to work really, really hard to try to confront the brutal facts about a person before you give them their offer letter. And um, that's a lot of work. Right. It, it, and it's time that's invested when you're in the startup mode that you're feeling guilty about because you should be writing code or you should be uh, selling or you should be doing something. But the truth is, if you don't do that, you're going to pay for it tenfold later on. Yeah, I grew up in a the son of a CEO and uh, I was impressed at the uh, diligence with which the companies my father worked for, particularly one recruited. I mean, you know, they'd fly in the spouses, they'd go to dinner, they would take them to, I mean, they'd really make sure before, you know, they'd obviously gotten, this was shortlisted to two people probably before all that happened, but startups don't have that time. But uh, um, obviously you interview them around the company, you try to get them in a social setting or two, I would imagine too, not just tell me about your background type conversations, right? Yes, exactly. If you can, if you can, and again, it depends on the role. Uh, but try to understand as much about them as you possibly can. Uh, they give you references. You check those references, but you also try to figure out who they know that you know that you can go to and they don't know about. Right. Um, so you can get some unadulterated, you know, feedback, et cetera. And, you know, a lot of times we sort of glamorize a candidate in our minds and we get so excited about, Oh my God, this person's going to be a game changer in my company. And, we really got to stay level-headed and listen to what other people tell us about this person and make the tough choices. And, you know, what I would say is that there's always somebody better, you know, that there's always somebody better out there. You can find them. And the same applies to you. You know, you've got to stay humble and hungry because there's always somebody that can do what you do. And um, if you sort of live by that, it, it, it helps you. What do you think of the concept, at least for startup and early stage companies, to put people under contract for 30 to 90 days before hiring anybody, if you can? I mean, that would sort of imply that you're hiring unemployed people. And, um, you know, one thing, I think part of the magic of a startup, part of what's really difficult is you're trying to, you know, you're the entrepreneur, you're taking great risk for, for, for a hopeful, great reward. But that doesn't that doesn't mean that you need to hire people that are just like that, that are big, big risk takers. In, in fact, a lot of times what you want to hire is the opposite. You want to hire people that are stable, reliable and things like that. And obviously hungry, but you know, they may be, they may be married with four kids and you shouldn't have to discriminate from hiring that person because they need some security. if They're the best person. And so if you can get away with a trial period for somebody, I'm all for it and I've done it, but you, you shouldn't be hiring the cheapest candidate or the one who's most flexible on that front um, necessarily. You need to go after the best candidate, and you need to create a company that attracts the best candidate. You um, have a good deal of experience dealing with the Valley and raising money there, and you know you and I are in the South Florida ecosystem. I, I think I know that we here sometimes compare ourselves and what we're not 
there are certainly lessons to be learned from the valley. Do you agree it's also dangerous to some extent to try to constantly compare yourself to the valley? Or is it always healthy to have that yardstick? Look, I think that I think the valley is a very, very unique place in the world and not even in the U.S., in the world. Right. And it's incredible. I mean, it's a place that I love. I love to be there. I love to meet people there. I, you know, I think it's the best place in the world. But I think that honestly, nobody should be trying to compete or compare themselves to the valley. This is something that has evolved over 50 years. And, um, there are things that happen there that will never happen in, in, in any other place, including New York, by the way. Right. So it's like, I think everybody needs to borrow best practices from the Valley and try to create their own identity as a, as a community. And there's certainly a lot to be learned. And, and I would tell you that part of the reason I think I've you know been able to, to have some measure of success is because I've always had one foot in the valley and one foot in, in you know where I live. But taking strategies that work in the valley and trying to apply them anywhere else tend to not work without some level of adaptation, in my opinion. Yeah, I personally think that too much time is spent comparing make, making that comparison. I think there's obviously it's a unique place in on the planet, not just here, as you said. On the other hand, that doesn't mean that someone's ecosystem doesn't have its own merits, you know, whether that's, yeah. it does, and I'm not talking the normal places like Austin or New York I'm ta- or Boston. I'm talking, you know, Kansas City or Dallas or Los Angeles or Miami, frankly. I think there's good things going on in a lot of ecosystems uh, and that thinking they have to be the valley and, you know, that they can only raise money in the valley and there's only talent in the valley is, first of all, it's not true. And second of all, it's not very healthy at, at all, at all. And there's so many, you know, part of the challenge for all of us is, is finding our own, you know, wherever it is we're trying to build our company. And um, it's a lot of hard work. And sometimes it's not just hard work within the company. Sometimes you, it's outside. Do you think it's healthy for ecosystems, however, to engage in what vertical specialization? I mean, in South Florida, healthcare is huge here. So one of the things that I've heard people say is, well, instead of everybody trying to build everything, you know, maybe that resources and mentoring and funding should go to three or four core verticals in our ecosystem. And I've heard the same thing, you know, in LA, it's around the entertainment space. Do you think that's a smart ecosystem development strategy or it's overemphasized? No, I, th- I think it's very smart. I mean, I, you know, innovation most logically happens near the need. And so, you know, having, you know, having access to people that understand the business that you're trying to solve, business problem you're trying to solve, um, having potential customers right there in your backyard, uh, it makes a lot of sense, right? Especially at the beginning of, the, of a company. It doesn't have to exclusively be that way, uh, but in many, in many things it does. It, it really should. And I, I, I think it's a great point, Bob, because I think it's, that that is really, in my opinion, a lot of how individual communities kind of can can come out of you know out of nowhere is is if they focus like that and and drive a little bit of a network effect where they're at. You said that you've uh, transitioned from being you know you haven't coded in years. You're a former engineer and now you're a product person and, and you know as as a CEO and you're in, in, certainly in this ecosystem and in, in parts of the valley. You're known quantity, so you're the fr- a front man. You know, for the engineers that are in the audience, of which there's probably a healthy percentage, are you naturally an outgoing person, Albert? And you had uh, technical instincts, or you, or is that an acquired uh, behavior? Did you learn to be more out front in order to make your business succeed? Yeah, so that, that's that's an interesting question. So um, I'll tell you the way I kind of think about it is, you know, I, I sort of grew up as a shy kid. I always had a lot of friends, but I was sort of shy. And, you know, there came a point in my life where I realized there was kind of two things I wanted. And that was pretty, pretty early, especially, you know, I always wanted to be an entrepreneur. And so I would say I, I wanted to be successful in business and I wanted to be successful with girls. And and I, I realized that shy was not going to get me there. And so, so, so I, I sort of had to, 
you know, I'm, I'm competitive by nature. And so I, I would throw myself into these situations and, and then swim out of them, I guess. is And, and, and so, you know, I, I don't think of myself as really shy anymore. You know, I've been married for a long time, so I solved the girl problem and <laughs> still working on the business side of it. But, uh, you know, uh, look, it, it, it's important to be able to, it helps you when you have the people skills to sell to create a, a kind of a following around you, uh, which you need when you're starting a company, and um, to sell investors and all this kind of stuff. But the world has gotten to a point where, you know, I think that uh, you, there, there's more than one formula for how do you build a company. There's a lot of bootstrapping that can go on. There's a lot of marketing and selling that can go on without the founder having to go out and knock on doors, right? Which was the, which was the old way. You right, can you can you can hire around it too. I, 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 you can hire around it too. I know. Uh, yeah, I got a, a group that I was doing some consulting with. The, the the guy that really ran the company was the CTO, and he was your kind of classic CTO. Uh, you know, yeah. incredibly technical, somewhat introverted, and and hugely smart. But he didn't have a big ego, and he realized the smart thing to do was he probably wasn't going to change. He was in his 40s, so he went and hired the CEO type, and he let the other guy have the title. And it told me a lot about his emotional maturity and why he would be uh, very investable uh, to have the wisdom to do that. Exactly. So, Albert, closing off on that topic, so, you know, a a large percentage of the people on the technical side are introverts, and you made, it sounds like, a teenage decision to start changing it, but some don't. Any, you know, any tips for those that are technical, young, in their 20s, they're starting a company and eventually are going to have to do more than stay behind the curtain. And they're going to have to, even someday they may, let's say they could hire a CEO, but they're still in the interim going to have to go and talk to investors, et cetera. How how does one start to push themselves to make some, you know, get get on that path to transforming and getting, getting beyond those insecurities? You know, it's an interesting question. Um, you know, yeah. I would say, I would say, look, I, I when I started down the path of entrepreneurship, you know, I, I would say that the first time I did it, first of all, I was scared to death, and I had a lot of I had a lot of responsibility by the time I did it too, um, and I transformed from uh, what I call a creature of logic to a creature of faith. So before that time, you know, I would um, I sort of made decisions in my life and went down paths where I could sort of see the end. I could I could strategize and. I could see my outcome. And I realized that entrepreneurship was much more complicated than that. And so if I was going to do it, you know, I just had to put myself in the situation and have faith in myself. And so, you know, if, if you have enough risk tolerance to become an entrepreneur, then you should have enough risk tolerance to get in front of people. And uh, even if that seems awkward and whatnot, the truth is some of the greatest things that have ever happened to me as an entrepreneur were just random interactions with people in all sorts of different settings that I I may not even have wanted to go to, right? An event I didn't want to go to, um, and I did, and something amazing came out of it. And um, it's sort of like exercise, right? Nobody wants to do it before it goes, before you do it. But when the workout's over, you're really happy. Right. Growth only comes from getting outside of your comfort zone. Yeah. Yeah. So earlier... You mentioned something called the consumerization of enterprise software, which is a lot of letters. Can, <laughs> can you elaborate a little bit more? That was part of the secret sauce of CareCloud. Elaborate on what the consumerization of enterprise software is. So, so, so it really, if you think about technology, right? Mm-hmm. 15 years ago, we weren't all using technology every day in our lives, right? You know, the iPhone came out in 07, the App Store in 08, and today, I mean, we have, mo- everybody has mo- mobile device, right? So we're using technology all the time. And so the people that cater to consumer technology, you know, the Facebooks, the Googles, the Apples of the world, you know, had to make the technology easy enough that the typical person, in, you know, even in the case, you know, in the Apple technology, I mean, you see two and three-year-olds you know, walking up to the television screen and trying to trying to drag you know objects on the screen because <laughs> they know what an iPhone works. They're like, why does this TV not do that stuff, right? Right. And so, 
it's so simple that toddlers can use the technology. So why is it that, you know, at work, you're using stuff that you literally require PhD for? So, so the, the typical, you know, I say millennial, but the millennials even now are, are kind of into their careers. But young people go to work and they're using some old technology and they ask themselves, why can't this be as simple as Facebook? And the answer is it can be. But, but the people that built it didn't care about the user experience. And so my belief is that business software needs to be as beautiful and usable as consumer software. And in every, in every opportunity you can, it also needs to be self-service. So imagine if you went, you, you became a new user of Facebook and they came back to you with a message saying, we'll be back to you in 30 days and we'll, we'll put you through 30 days of training and you'll be up and running in 60 days. You wouldn't use it. And so in as much as you can get business technology to uh, conform to those same standards, you have, you have enormous opportunity. Does that make sense? No, it does make sense. But so, you know, it's kind of funny when people talk about oh, iOS, you know, the, the number of people that even know what operating system is now versus 20 years ago is pretty funny. Is the same true on the programming side? You know, are we, is there a consumerization on that side? Is it, or is it still the same processes? Is it, what's going on on the back end? Well, the pro- programming in itself has gotten a lot easier in my opinion. You know, their platforms have come of age that really, really facilitate the development of software. And uh, to, you know, that, that, by the way, that is part and parcel of what we're facilitating with my, with my uh, new company. Uh, it's, it's very much to put those capabilities into the hands of people without even coding skills. And what is that new company, by the way? So the new company is called 8Base. Mm-hmm. It's, it's really the number eight and the word base. And what we are is a no-code development platform. So imagine if, you know, think of, I don't know if you're familiar with Wix or Squarespace, which is a technology that is used to build websites. And, you know, typical business people can use that technology to do it. But the idea is that um, you can, you know, as a business person, go in self-service and build the business software that you need. Uh, And after it's built, it's hosted in our environment. So you really don't have to worry about any of the traditional IT functions that that need to occur. And you're up and running at at very quickly, at very little expense, and without having to have coding skills or watch hours of training videos or any of this stuff. So we we enable what's called called a citizen developer. So the question I'm about to ask will probably reflect how little I know, but how is that different from object-oriented design or some of the advantages of, uh, of open source programming already? Well, all of, all of the things you just mentioned require developers. So right. require engineers. You know, accessing open source technology is not something that a typical person can do. Um, accessing, you know, APIs, the way they're constructed is typically not something that, you know, a normal person can do. So what's the... And um, even accessing, by the way, the Amazon, you know, AWS, Amazon Web Services, the Amazon Cloud is not something a typical person can do. Developers, right? And the developers are keepers to this stuff. Yep. And... If I told you so, so, and by the way, you know, I, I can say this because, because I'm, I, I've been a developer. I am a developer. I love developers, but, but the truth is if I told you, look, Bob, we have this great opportunity. We need to build this incredible software for the business. And when we do, you know, we're going to be hugely successful, but you've got to run it. You've got to run the project. You got to hire the people. You're going to have to manage this day to day. And your life is on the line, by the way, because if you don't deliver, we're all we're all in big trouble, right? The first emotion you feel most likely is not excitement; it's probably dread. And this is true of almost anybody. Uh, managing hiring developers is notoriously difficult. Managing them is even harder. Uh, trying to go from business requirements to finished product to scalable product, all this kind of stuff is really, really difficult and expensive. And so what if I told you that you could take a ton of risk off the table and at a minimum, you could have a working prototype very quickly. And before you know it, that working prototype, which wouldn't be a throwaway, 
would evolve into finished product and software that you can use. Well, I think most people realize it, that it's a universal problem that we're trying to solve. I mean, it's, it's a very, very big opportunity. I would think, and I, I you know, I, I know that people know that developers don't have to rebuild code calendar functionality from scratch. They can grab that widget or or, or object and, and pull it into what they're otherwise coding. So that some, which is some of the things that are out available for programmers on the open source side but how is i mean it sounds almost too easy to believe albert how does it really work well it's it's a combination so so let me let me let me tell a little bit about the competitive environment maybe that'll answer the question so there there is competition yep the way i would characterize the competition is most of it is built by developers for developers so they're actually selling to developers and IT organizations uh, as productivity tools, right? So you can develop faster. Right. So architecturally, these systems are generally very similar to APACE. The difference is the user experience, right? The user experience for a business person needs to be dramatically different than for a developer. Right. So a lot of our innovation is there. And then we get to leverage a lot of the stuff that you talked about, right? So if we were building this system 15 years ago, like our competitors did, because most of them were born between the time period of 1999 and 2005, the decisions you made in technology back then were completely wrong by today's standards. And they had to spend a decade building the underlying infrastructure. Whereas we get to leverage, you know, things that exist um, like the you know Amazon Web Services or the Google Cloud, uh, Twilio, Stripe, open source technologies, APIs from all sorts of different companies. I mean, the list goes on and on and on of things that we get to leverage, curate, uh, put a front end around it to make it really easy to access and um, get to the market a lot faster, a lot better. But does, because there's simplicity involved, you know, presumably to dealing with, say, morons like me and not programmers. Does that mean that ABASE's you know, output, its functionality, what it, you can actually use it for is pretty limited? Like, you know, I can baby, basically build a simple website like I could with Squarespace or I could do, or what are its limitations? You know, over time, there isn't much in terms of limitations. Um, you know, this, this comes, this, this idea comes... You know, I've, I've been, I started out my career in, in enterprise software in the financial services industry uh, on mainframes using assembly language, right? And then it was healthcare IT uh, shortly after that. Then it was management consulting where I, I worked in a lot of, you know, ERP implementations, supply chain, CRM implementations. Uh, then later on, it was founding and, and more importantly, designing and architecting two multi-tenant uh, you know, cloud-based systems for Avicenna and CareCloud. And so this is something I've been thinking about for probably all of that time. Mm-hmm. But the only, it's only now that the time has made it possible, like the technology has come of age and, and consumer mindsets have come of age to be able to make something like this possible. And so, you know, it's, it's, it's something we see very clearly and we see the complexity, but our job is to take that complexity, abstract it away, and make the user interface so simple that anybody can use it. It's sort of like an ATM, right? ATM, huge complex complexity behind the scenes. You can go to any ATM in the world and withdraw money from your bank account, um, you know, wherever wherever it's based. But the transaction is generally the same on the front end, right? It's It's very simple. Everybody understands it. But the complexity is abstracted away. And so think of limitations in terms of what we do. We're not going to have everything all at once. But over time, the flexibility is all there. And, and what are the initial focuses then? I mean, that you'll, you'll roll out it, it being able to do X, Y, and Z. What are X, Y, and Z? So, so the minimum viable product is, pretty, is a pretty robust product. Mm-hmm. Okay, so... There's going to be a lot of use cases in business uh, in all different industries that can be enabled and can be done in a very in a novel way that really differentiates us from from the competition. Mm-hmm. I won't get into too much of that right now, but but 
Um, you know, I, what I what what I couldn't tell you is um, we're going to be, uh, you know, we're going to be enabling uh, CRM solutions in the legal industry or we're going to be doing, you know, document solutions in the cruise line industry or whatever, because because it's not that narrow. Right. Right. Uh, there's always that temptation to say, let's pick a specific use case and let's perfect that. But the, the danger in that is that you end up being a software as a service player in that space. And that's not what we're trying to do. We're trying to build a tool set that can be easily consumed to build, you know, myriad uh, software applications for different use cases, different end users. How far along are you in terms of like, where are you in your rollout? So, so the company was literally, you know, incorporated in March. Okay. Although, you know, I've been working full time on this um, for a number of months. Mm -hmm. And then the um, put the team, you know, kind of the first order of business was putting the team together. And I'm I'm thrilled to say that, you know, I, I feel like I've got a really, really strong team from the from the onset. Uh, and, it's you know, it, it's it's a multi it's a cross functional team. So we're we're building the technology, the product, and but we're also building the marketing engine for this, you know, from the beginning. And, and how so many that as we as we launch, we, we we can flip the switch on both. Mm -hmm. So so there, you know, the other thing that we did was was raise capital. So you know, I and one of the other kind of core team members invested uh, money, and you know, so and then and then angel investors invested money. We've, uh, you know, we're close to a million dollars in capitalization and uh, we've spent very little of it. So we've, we've been extremely resourceful with that money and we've got, you know, significant runway. Um, but, uh, you know, one of the things I'm, I'm, I'm being cautious of, you know, CareCloud, you know, oh, I guess to date has raised somewhere around a hundred million dollars of, of capital. Mm -hmm. And... Uh, you know, I, I'm a big believer in you got to capitalize these companies properly, mm -hmm. but this company doesn't require anywhere near that amount of capital, and 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 I want it to be that way. Um, so we'll we'll raise capital as needed, mm -hmm. but uh, you know we're not going to overdo it, and we're going to be really really cautious about who who we partner with in terms of investors. How many people are on the team now? So there's uh, about ten people uh, working on this full time. And are they virtual? Or are you co-located, or a little bit of both? So, so we're doing we're doing both. But the, the core team, you know, the people who who have sort of founding equity and so forth, are all uh, here in Miami with me. Mm -hmm. um, and really, you know, we have a really you know in, nice and inexpensive office at my house. Uh, so we're trying to you know, pretty miserly about, about just about everything, uh, including that. So team works here, you know, long hours. Uh, and then we have some, some development that's happening offshore in Eastern Europe and Russia. So, so yeah, so the team, you know, we also have this, um, some of our development is happening offshore. Mm -hmm. Our VP of technology, uh, which is based here in, in, in the home office is Russian by background. And so he, he speaks fluent Russian. We've done a lot of work to really kind of select offshore resources to help us with this. And we have a very, very well-structured process to make sure that, you know, what we send offshore and what we get back is, is you know, incredible kind of products. And so I've been really, really happy with the way this is all working. You know, we do very high fidelity design compositions on our side, and then we kind of run that through a process it gets built offshore and everybody's been running on time and providing quality work the, the first go around. So we feel like this is really, this model is really scalable and it sort of overcomes the um, kind of local talent problem that you have. So if I was to say, well, Miami doesn't have enough great engineers, I could probably say that about almost any community. True. Uh, including Silicon. Valley. Yep. And in Silicon Valley, even if you could attract the, the engineers, well, you might not, they might not be around a year from now, you right? They might leave. Couldn't afford a venture. So, so we, we've created a situation where we can access a larger pool of talent 
because of our process, they're a little more fungible. And, uh, you know, we can, we can really scale this without having to worry too much about the local situation and also do it at a much, you know, lower, lower cost. You had mentioned earlier when we were talking about CareCloud about, you know, how 90% of your customer acquisition was really through your website. In other words, it was inbound. What are some of the techniques that you're, you know, kind of porting over from that experience to replicate that and keep your customer acquisition costs down? Yeah, that's a, that's a, it's a great question. So, you know, some, some of this I'll tell you is, is, is my, you know, part of the eight base, why eight base and why the way we're doing it is just, um, I wanted to have a business model that, uh, had certain characteristics to it. Mm-hmm. And so one of those, you know, I, I'm, I'm anticipating that eight base is going to track like an exponential organization. So meaning that customers can self-service, get up and running without human intervention. And to that end, I didn't want to build an enterprise sales force day one. So, you know, been there, done that on that side. And, you know, enterprise sales force is one of the things that can consume all of your capital. It's fraught with danger, you know, people dependent. It's just not something I wanted to do. So we're going to employ largely different disciplines of marketing to, to create that inbound demand and then use a couple of tricks we have up our sleeves to convert people to clients. And then over time and, and out of profits, we will build an enterprise sales force when it's time to go after the CIOs. There, there, there will be a time where we go after CIOs directly. Mm-hmm. And at that point, we'll have a sales to do it. But we won't build that out of venture capital. We'll build that out of profits. So it sounds like you're not fully uh, live at this point to the public. When do you officially kind of roll this out in a much more open way? And how do people find you? It sounds like 8Base does some incredible things. When can people start, you know, using it? So we'll, we'll be in beta in the first quarter of next year. Okay. And, you know, general release in the second quarter is what we're anticipating. Can people? And so we're going to try our damnedest to, to make those dates. Mm-hmm. But the truth is, what I'm not going to do is release a product that's not, you know, kind of deliver as, as, as advertised. Mm-hmm. So we're, we're going to put all of this through the paces and make sure that, you know, with the first release and every subsequent release, we're, uh, we're de- delivering a very high quality product. Can people start learning about it or to, to just, you know, keep track of it or what's, what's on your website or when, when should I start going to your website to learn more? So the website doesn't have a lot of information that that'll change. And then before the end of the year, mm-hmm. um, what, what people can do is they can go to the website, uh, put in their email address mm-hmm. and, and then we'll keep them informed. Um, so right now, all that's really all you can, all you can do. You go out there and you say, you know, Get in the know, and uh, and we'll keep you in the know. And what's the URL again? 8base.com. And that's the number 8base.com. That's right. Oh, cool. Albert, I could talk to you for hours, and uh, but you, pro- you, you probably don't have time to do that. <laughs> so I want to thank you for spending an hour now uh, educating our audience and sharing your wisdom. You're a fascinating guy and a good guy, and I'm sure that came through today, and it's very kind of you to share your time. No, Bob, this has been a pleasure, okay? Thank you so much. Thank you, Albert.